called the new yeah it's not so Apple they came out with a new iPad today and they didn't want to call it the iPad really everybody thought they were they're going to call it the just the new iPad that's it <laughs> good evening are John and Frida did they go see her sister do you know what's that oh they went to see her already and came back Oh, I thought Monday they said that they wanted to go see her or something. I mean, I guess that misunderstood. And the baby's doing better. Oh, okay. Well, I want to start out by saying how mad I am at Dennis. Just so everybody knows that. Really, 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 really mad. <laughs> Last Wednesday night, I just... You know, I just barely even, I just poked my head into Philippians 2 for like, I was in and out, faster than Superman could say, Catman dude, we were done, and didn't even talk about the good stuff. And then Sunday morning, he was so mad at me that he just came into John 1 and he took all the good stuff right out of John 1. So, since I didn't actually write John 1, I can't be that mad at him. So, And it's really, really good stuff, so you can't be that mad at me either. So... Let's turn to John 1, 14. Um, this is our final, second of two messages from verses 14 to 18. It's also the last sermon, last Bible study, whatever, um, from the entire prologue. So next week we're going to get into the, the narrative account, which I'm excited about. So John 1, 14. When you've located that, let's stand for God's Word. The Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Father, we lift up this gathering tonight and pray for Your presence, Lord. You are with Your people to lead, guide, protect, and provide. And so we pray that You would be with us tonight to do those those very things, Lord. Uh, To lead us in the right way in Your Word. To um, protect us from error. And to provide us with truth, Lord. And fill our souls with Um, just nourishment and wonder and obedience. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just to recap very briefly, I doubt there are very few of you who memorized the sermon last week. Um, We said that verse 18 is the, the linchpin that holds this paragraph together. Verse 18, No one has seen God ever. The only God, Jesus, who's at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. That was the meaning we argued for last week. Um, No one has ever seen God the Father. The eternal Son, who is vindicated and exalted at the right hand of God, he has made the Father fully known to us. We talked about that word exegesis. 
what a pastor does when he fully unfolds and explains the text. That's the word. That's what the Son has done for us on behalf of the Father. And this week, um, well, we're, we're continuing along with the two ways from this text that the Son has done that. The two ways that the Son has made the Father fully known. We said the first way is at the beginning of verse 14, the Word became flesh. And we spent all last week talking about that and how in becoming flesh in His incarnation, He gave us a visible presentation of the Father, of God, that we hadn't seen. A, a glimpse of the essence of God, the glory of God, the attributes of God, just by being here, just by living amongst us that we had never seen. And this week we continue the second way the Son has made the Father known. Again, picking up in verse 18, or verse 14. The Son has made the Father known, or the Son has exegeted the Father, number two, by showing us His glory. And He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, He's made the Father known by showing us His glory. Um, we already covered verse 15, so we're going to kind of treat that as a parenthesis tonight. This is the golden nugget that Dennis stole. Uh, I think he owes me a pancake breakfast for that, by the way. Uh, I'll stop joking now. Dwelt. Okay, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. You see that? Thanks. Dwelt among us. Okay. Dwelt is a very, very special Greek word. If you, have a, if you write in your Bibles and you don't already have this written, I would recommend you write this in here. It only occurs five times in the Greek New Testament which is very little, okay? Um, once right here, and four times in the book of Revelation. Now, who wrote the book of Revelation? Same person, right? So, once here, four times in his other book, the book of Revelation. And I don't normally do this, but I just want to read each of these other passages very briefly, uh, at least three of them. I think it will make the point itself if we do. So, so look at Revelation, turn to Revelation, let's look at 7.15. Seven fifteen. It's a very cool word. <clears throat> um, and he said to me that one of the elders, he said to John, "These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation." Am I reading the right verse? Ah, I'm not. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Okay? Now, this is one of the, the four places in that verse there that occurs. What's the context? Temple, God's presence. Right? Uh, 13.6 Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. There it is. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So the dwelling place of God. And then, same context then. And then 21.3 is the last one we're going to look at. Um, 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The ultimate picture of God, God as the final temple, right? And the new heavens and new earth. Okay, so back to John 1. In Revelation, and remember the one, the same apostle wrote both books. 
from the Apostle John, we have four uses of Revelation and one in the Gospel here. And in Revelation, three of them clearly are in reference to the temple, God's temple. In this case, the eschatological coming temple that is God's presence dwelling amongst God's people. Um, in fact, the, the, I don't know if anybody has a King James, New King James, or NASB, New American Standard Bible here tonight, but, but the, they all translate the word as temple, or tabernacle. Um, so the word is skenao. And in secular literature, this is what I was going to tell you to write, in secular literature it means to pitch your tent, or to live in your tent. Okay? Um, when does God live in a tent? In the tabernacle, Right? In the Old Testament, in the tent of meeting or temple, three three phrases that all refer essentially the same thing. Kind of, they refer to different periods, but the tent of meeting, tabernacle, and temple are all the same reality, right? Um, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was a, a literal tent that that I'm going to put this in quotes housed God's presence amongst God's people. Okay, John says the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That is awesome. The Word became flesh, that's cool enough, but He tabernacled among us. I hope when you read that or hear that, that all the, the biblical theological neurons in your brain are firing, making lots of connections here from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. What is the tabernacle? Jesus tabernacled amongst us. That's a sweet, sweet passage. Um, it's very, very deliberate on His part, on John's part. Nobody else even uses this form of the Word, and, and more importantly, if John wanted to say that Jesus lived with us. Jesus stayed with us. Jesus hung out with us. There's 50 more common words that are used 100 times in the New Testament that he would have used. Um, that's not what he's saying. Now, he's not saying less than that, of course. He's saying at least that. But, but more than that, he's saying something very profound theologically. And it's not an accident that in this most prominent section of the book, I'm saying 14 through 18, or the, the kind of climax of this book, he makes a very deliberate point that Jesus tabernacled amongst us because throughout the rest of this book, he is several times going to make the point that Jesus is the true and final temple. Jesus is the true and final temple. Well, let's explain that. I don't know how much y'all talk about the kingdom of God here. It, it's, it's my understanding, and this would take a week to explain, but, uh, or to defend, I guess. But it's, it's my belief that the kingdom of God is a uniting theme that holds Scripture together. In other words, it's, it's my understanding, if you, if you were to look at Scripture from a literary perspective, it's, it's my understanding that the kingdom of God is the plot line that runs throughout all of Scripture. And it hangs on the covenants. But kingdom of God, it's very prominent. Um, turn over to Mark chapter 1. It's a really cool verse too. Mark 1. In verse 12, it's the very beginning of the Gospel, obviously, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to Him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Okay, so in Mark's Gospel... Right there, we just met Jesus for the first time. He's baptized. He's driven out in the wilderness to face temptation. And then John is arrested. And this is important because when John is arrested, that marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You know, John, who is John? What's his role? 
He's the forerunner for Jesus, right? He's preparing the way. So when John is arrested, God's saying, John, you're done. You did it, okay? You're going to die in prison, actually. He's going to be beheaded, right? So John is stepping aside. He's finished his ministry. So Jesus is stepping forward, beginning his ministry. And that's what verses 14 and 15 describe, the, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. But what makes this text so significant is that it seems to summarize the entire ministry of Jesus. This is not just... John doesn't, or Mark isn't saying there was one time Jesus went to Galilee and preached this message. This is, he goes into Galilee and he's preaching. And this is what he's preaching. And never again, really interesting that I preached the Gospel of Mark. Never again in Mark does Mark say, Jesus preached and this is what he said. Of course, we have recorded dialogue of Jesus. But Mark isn't like John when he records these long sermons of Jesus and Matthew and Luke with the Sermon on the Mount. This is the one and only time in Mark where he gives us the essence of Jesus' sermon. Okay, so we, we take this to be a summary of Mark's understanding of what Jesus preached throughout his ministry on earth. That's amazing, because if you read this carefully, Mark calls this the gospel, doesn't he? The gospel, the good news. It says, he came proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. What good news? The good news I just told you. Right? The good news that the time of the kingdom of God has come. That's the good news. He's calling people to believe in. And he's saying, he's the fulfillment of the times. The time is fulfilled. Why? Because he's standing there. The kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning you can reach out and touch it. Why? Because he's standing there. He's brought the kingdom of God. And he's saying, believe that. Repent and believe that. That's interesting because when we think gospel, we, well, at least culturally, we think um, God wants us to be happy, right? That's the good news. God wants to make us prosperous in this life, or God's got a, what is the little phrase, God's got a good and clear plan for your life, or something like that. Or maybe a get out of hell free pass. For Mark, for Mark, for Jesus, for Luke, and for Paul in the book of Acts, which I could show you all those. The gospel is summarized as the arrival of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus. Okay? That's the good news. Of course, how does the king, I'm not leaving out the cross and resurrection here. The kingdom comes through his death and resurrection, obviously. But that's pretty powerful. That that's a that summary of the good news. So we don't need to turn there. You know the story. We'll be going over it. I'm gonna, here I'm going to steal Dennis again. Uh, payback. Uh, think back to Genesis 1 and 2 in your brains. Something really interesting about Genesis 1 that a lot of people miss, it's about as kingly sounding of a passage as you could ever hear in Genesis 1. Have you ever thought about that? How does God create the world? What does he do? He speaks, and what does he say? Let there be light. Let there be fish. Let there be luminaries in the sky to rule. Let there, let there be teeming, let the earth team with, with living creatures. Let there be, let there, who talks? When you come home from work, they'll say, let there be spaghetti on my plate. Unless you want to get smacked. Of course, the king talks like that. It's a royal, it sounds so royal, doesn't it? It's a royal decree. Let there be. And in this case, the king is so powerful that though the things don't even exist, they come obeying into existence. And even cooler, God creates the heavenly life. What does he tell them to do? Rule. Rule over the day. 
ruler of the night. He creates us. What does he tell us to do? Rule and have dominion. Be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. So much kingly language. The king of the universe in Genesis 1 is ordering and establishing his kingdom. Um, if you haven't heard of Vaughn Roberts, he's got a really... Vaughn Roberts and Gold, Graham Goldsworthy. It's uh, If you go to Southern Seminary, where I, where I used to go, and walk through the book tunnel, they call it, which is the... It's like a, a hallway, kind of, that wrapped around our bookstore, and that's where we put all the textbooks. And it's interesting. It's really cool to do, to go back and visit and see what all the classes are requiring and things like that. And the interesting thing, you'll see one book. You'll see the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew, all over it, but then you'll see Wayne Grimm's Systematic Theology and Graham Goldsworthy's According to Plan. It's like all 50 different classes make you read that book, which is good. You read it once, and then you can say, you know, I'll read it again. Um, But Vaughn Roberts is summarizing that book in God's Big Picture, and he defines the kingdom of God like this. And if you commit this to memory, this is so helpful. Kingdom of God. God's people in God's place living under God's present rule. God's people in God's place living under God's present rule. There's been all this tension. Is the kingdom of God a place or is it a rule? Well, it's both. It's all that. It's a king with people to rule, and those people in relationship with that king, that's the kingdom of God in his place. So God's people in God's place under God's present rule. That's the picture. So in Genesis 1, God's creating that. What's the picture we get in Genesis 2? That's it. Right? We've got God's people, Adam and Eve, creating God's image in obedience to him, given the promise of glorification on the condition of obedience, right, if they will obey. What are they doing? They're living in God's place, paradise in Eden, this blessed place where God is supreme, and more importantly, God is present. He's ruling presence. So you've got God's people in God's place living under God's present rule. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. But, of course, they sin. And in consequence of the fall, God casts them out of the garden, and he places the permanent cherubim as guards. And all of a sudden, there's separation from the blessed presence of God's present rule. The kingdom is slipping away. Not only that, well, there, there's, so there's a barrier there, a big barrier, a flaming sword cherubim angel barrier. That's a big barrier. Um, but now, the world is not completely comprised of God's people either. So they lost God's place, and they lost God's present rule, and now they're losing God's people. Because what happens in the, in the next chapter? Cain kills Abel. we got murder. And this start of a line that isn't God's people. In fact, that's going to be the majority line. God isn't going to preserve a few people who aren't his people. He's going to preserve a few people who are his people. A small remnant. And to make matters worse, the Tower of Babel, we get dispersed and confused. And the kingdom of God slips farther and farther away. It's just like vanishing. till culminating in Noah when it's, everything is destroyed. Goes on for a thousand years, getting worse and worse. The world goes to hell, literally. Until God comes to a shepherd in Midian watching the flocks. And he says, Moses, go get that people for me. What's he doing? He's calling a people. He's creating a people. God's people, God's place, God's rule. He's creating a people. Through the Passover, through the slaying of the lamb, the blood on the doors, he's adopting them. You're not my people, but he's taking them back as his people. He's adopting them. And then Moses leads them out, having adopted them. What's the first thing God does? He begins even farther to reestablish his kingdom. Because now he is with them. Where's he been while they're in Exodus? Where's God been? I mean, God's everywhere, but where's his blessed presence? 
nowhere. There's no, there wasn't a place where you could go to the, the blessed presence of, there wasn't an Eden, right? But as soon as he adopts them, he's with them all of a sudden. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He's with them to lead them. He's with them to protect them from the Egyptians on their heels. And he's with them to provide for them. He gives them manna. He gives them water. He's with them, right? It's a mini restoration of the kingdom of God. No, this is a long... That's okay. That's good. Then God takes them directly to the mountain of God. Right? And, and God, we could say more specifically, I think, like last week, the Son, God the Son, gives them two things. The law. So there's the restoration of God's rule. And he gives them um, instructions for building this tent. There's the other thing. God's present rule. It's, he's, it's going to be called the tent of meeting, an actual literal tent made out of animal hide. It um, can be strung on poles and carried from place to place. It's, it's a traveling tent. <clears throat> it's going to be with them and lead them all the way into the promised land. And in that tent, one person, once a year, goes into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. And there above the mercy seat, God sort of, kind of, in a hovering fashion, dwells in this kind of mystical sense. Um, when, they, when the tent is finished and they dedicate it, a cloud comes and rests upon the tabernacle. And when it's time for them to move, the cloud leads them, and etc. Very cool, right? I mean, they, they camped around this tent. They could look out their tent window and see the cloud on the, uh, on the tent. That would be pretty neat to know, oh, there's God. <laughs> He's with us right now. That's cool. But it's, that's one more step toward restoration, but this is still not quite it, right? I'll, I'll move faster. <laughs> After 40 years of disobedience, he eventually leads these adopted people across the Jordan River into the promised land. A, a, a land he gives to his people to be a special place of fellowship. So now we've got it. God's place, God's people, God's present rule. It's interesting, isn't it, that they have to cross through the river. This is a great story. Uh, that he, he waits to have them cross through. They camp right across the river, and they wait until the, the river is at flood stage, the Bible says. Why? At certain times of year, you can just jump across the Jordan River. But they wait until it's dangerously wide and flooded over its banks to cross. Why? So God can stop it and dramatically lead them into the promise. He doesn't want them to just all jump across the creek and, oh, here we are. He wants this to be dramatic. I'm, you are taking the promise and you're entering in. And how cool is it? Remember last week I said how amazing it was the Bible just comes together. How cool is it? Where is it that Jesus crosses through? We just read it in Mark 12. He goes out to the Jordan River to be baptized, to pass through, pass under the same river, to lead us into the promised rest of God that God led the people through very dramatically into the promised rest of God. This is all very cool. Now, if that sounds to you like, man, I wish I could have been there for that. wish I could have seen that tent of meeting and the cloud of God's presence. That sounds amazing. Then you're not thinking about it very deeply. Because, yes, they had God's rule, but it wasn't written on their hearts, right? Unless they were regenerated. It's written on tablets of stone. Yes, yes, they lived in God's place, but this isn't God's place like Eden was God's place, right? This isn't, this isn't an Eden paradise. There are still wild beasts that will kill you. Um, there are still invading armies that will destroy villages and kill mothers and babies often. And, and worst of all, 
Yes, it's God's place, but God never comes walking in the cool of the day, does he? You ever hear in Second Samuel, God just came walking in the cool of the day? No. I mean, they had God's presence sort of, in, of all things, a tent. A tent. They set up their tents around this one tent with a cloud. It was an animal high glorified camping tent with a cloud on it. And it's light years ahead of what they had in Exodus, of course. But this isn't what God intended, is it? That's not very intimate fellowship for one person once a year to go into a place where God's sort of kind of hovering dwells in the cloud. Everything, all of that, everything we just talked about, that whole story, it was all just prefiguring. It was all just foreshadowing, pointing forward to what Jesus would do when he came, when the future coming of the kingdom would come. And the Israelites should have understood that. God told them this repeatedly through the prophets. This is not it. This is not it. How do I know that? I know because one day the Babylonians come and they totally level the tabernacle. That's not it. And they carry off the utensils and destroy it down to the foundation. They, they carry off the people. The people are taken away, the place is taken away, and the land is taken away. Right? They get exiled. That's not the kingdom of God. That was a picture. That was a, a portrait. It was like an artist painting a portrait of what the kingdom of God would look like when it came. And one day, after hundreds of years of silence from God, a man went down into a river, the very same river God's people crossed 1,500 years earlier into the promised land, and a voice came down from heaven and said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well placed. That man went out and battled against Satan, and for the first time ever, he was completely victorious, impervious to the temptations of Satan. And then he went to the people of God and said, Listen up, I have good news for you. I have gospel for you. The time is fulfilled. The, the thousands of years of anticipation, of preparation, of pointing forward to, of foreshadowing, it's done. The kingdom of God is finally here. And John says it in his own way. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And with that, we see the kingdom of God restored. Not by building a massive tent of cowhide with gold plating, not by rebuilding a lost garden in the Middle East, but by coming himself. That's how he restored the kingdom. He came. Coming and bringing together a people for his own possession through his own blood. That's what he intended all along. God living with his people, not just a symbol, not just a cloud of his presence, but he himself living amongst his people in, in dominion and fellowship. Infinitely better than a tent, right? I mean, how better is that than a tent? Infinitely better than Solomon's temple, this blood-saturated temple. God came to live with us. God came to dwell among us. Yes, He is the tabernacle of God, the final temple. So we don't need a temple today. We don't want a temple because we have Him. We have a temple, but it's Him, right? We don't need to rebuild any building. We have Him. That's why, that's why Jesus is going to say, destroy this temple... And I'll raise it up in three days. And then John says, by the way, he said this referring to himself. The kingdom of God now is King Jesus. Uniting a people to himself. Living under his kingly rule and kingly dominion. That's the kingdom of God. That's what it's all been about. And that's what happened when the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So John goes on to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. No one's ever seen the Father. The Jews might have said, well, we saw the glory of God. 
We, could, we went out to the tabernacle and there was this cloud there. We saw the glory of God. John says, no, no, no. We have seen the glory of God when he truly tabernacled amongst us. In the Old Testament, if they wanted to come face to face with the presence of God, they made the journey to the temple. They saw a cloud. They said, oh, we saw God's glory. They meant they saw a token of the presence of God. But now we've truly seen the glory of God in flesh. We've seen him eat from last week. We talked about this. We've seen him eat. We've seen him drink. We've seen him love. We've seen him rebuke. We've seen him teach. We've seen him defeat and conquer and die and rise to victory. We've seen the glory of God in Jesus because he was the eternal son tabernacling amongst us. And the reason I take so much time is that's the, whole, that's the only point tonight. How has, how, was he, how has the Father been revealed to us? Through the Son tabernacling among us. right? By becoming and becoming the true and final temple of God. Let me say as a, as a clear caveat that I'm not in any way trying to undermine the revelation of God in the Old Testament saying it wasn't worth anything. That's the last thing I want to do. Because even in the Old Testament, the, the temple was something wonderful and spectacular without any shadow of doubt. And it was very gracious on God's part. Very gracious. But, but what I do want to do is put that Old Testament tabernacle into perspective. Because a cloud doesn't tell me very much. What do you learn from a cloud? He's here. That's about it. He's here. And that's awesome. That would be an amazing thing when you're terrified of an army more powerful than you getting ready to cut you down. He's here. But a person, Jesus, to be able to see the tabernacling presence of God in Jesus, that tells us everything. And when you read the New Testament Gospel accounts, when you... When you read of Jesus casting out the legion of demons and spitting on the ground and making mud to heal this blind man's eyes. When you read and mark the, very, the next chapter that we didn't read, but when you read of Jesus laboring to teach, like laboring to teach and heal and speak all day long, right? He gets up before it's, they call it the longest day of ministry. Mark says he gets up before the sun comes up to go out and pray by himself. Then he's up. He's surrounded by people all day long. People are coming out to him by the thousands. He he labors all day long into the night. So he's been ministering now for 15, 16 hours. He gets on a boat to cross the other side, where people are still chasing him. And what happens? This ridiculous storm comes up. A storm so terrible that the, the fishermen who make their living on the lake think they're going to die. Okay, so that's a pretty terrifying storm. And what's Jesus doing? Sleeping. On a wooden boat. He's supposed to be steering. He says he's sitting in the steering chair in the Greek. He's supposed to be doing something, but he falls asleep. In the middle of a storm that the fishermen think they're going to die. He's exhausted. I mean, he's fatigued to the bone. Why? Because he spent himself. He had spent himself all day in obedience to the Father. So when you read that, don't just say, oh, I get that. See the glory of God in that. That's what we're supposed to see. When you read the Gospel accounts, you're supposed to read it to see God's glory being revealed to us. Behold the glory of God on display. And and be deliberate about how you read that. Don't just say, oh, I get it. He went from here, then he went to there. Sit down. When you sit down to open the New Testament, just prepare your mind by saying to yourself, I'm getting ready to read the revelation of God's glory incarnate. God's glory revealed. That's what you're getting ready to read. If, if John the Apostle was standing here today, somehow, I don't know, miraculously, 
And he hands you a piece of paper, folded up piece of paper, and says, Ryan, here's a, here's a sketch I did the day I woke up from my dream, whatever it was, my vision in Revelation, and I saw God. Here's a sketch I drew of God's face. I want you to see it. What, what's going on in your head whenever he hands that to you? I mean, the butterflies are going off. Right? I get, I'm, I'm going to see a portrait of what John saw, the glory of God. I'm going to see that and all the anticipation and just, I mean, nerves, just unbelievable excitement. I'm getting ready to get a one-of-a-kind glimpse of God. It just occurred to me, when we open to the gospel accounts, that's exactly what we're getting. Except it's entirely from God's preservation and, and authoritative and inspired. We're getting even better than a hand-sketched portrait of God by John. This is, this is the revelation of God's image, his attributes, and his essence. And this is what he himself wants us to see. This is a self-portrait preserved for us from God. That's Jesus' life and ministry. So, so read it with trembling. Read it with reverence. Read it not just to get the order of events, but more than that, to, to behold the revelation of his glory. To be able to say with John... We have seen His glory. Can you say that? No one has seen God. Jesus, the one and only, He has made Him known. He has made Him fully known. Before we close, there's a, there's a lot of wonderful implications of that for us. I think we'll have occasion to cover most of them throughout the rest of our time in John. Um, but there's one briefly that hits home with me I want to share with you. There's a passage that's always been really cool to me. I think that's because it's a guy. It's a guy passage. So sorry, ladies. But um, In First Chronicles, there's a list of men known as David's mighty men. Right? You familiar with these guys? They're a small, elite group of soldiers. They're like Israel's SWAT team or something like that. Just valiant, devoted warriors who, most importantly, gave themselves to the service of the king, King David. These are David's mighty men. They're the, they're kind of, have you seen Braveheart? These are, these are the William Wallaces of Israel. And um, it wasn't just anybody who made the list. It was this special elite. They had to do something outstanding of, some, of repute and, and have this reputation. But, but again, beyond just being amazing, victorious warriors, more than anything, they had to be the I'll-do-anything-for-you sort of people for the king. That's what made them for King David. And there were three in particular. They were called the three. They were like the, I don't know, the elite of the elite, you know. Um, First Chronicles tells us the story of these guys. One of them, it says, held back. Uh, there was a battle, and the Israelites needed to retreat. And so one of the three, this is how he became one of the three, he had one spear, and he held back the entire 400-person army of the Philistines by himself while the Israelite army retreated. He laid down, he was like, I'm here, I'm going to die, that's fine. But he kept back the army so that his people could retreat. Right? That's a man. <clears throat> um, not quite the same level as the three, there was also the 30. And they were maybe one rank below, I guess, but they also distinguished themselves by somehow just giving themselves to the service of the king. Really, really interesting. Um, you read, uh, this is just a side note, you read the list of 30 men, guess who makes the list of the 30? Those who are most devoted, in all of Israel, most devoted to King David. Uriah the Hittite. Doesn't that break your heart? 
the man whose wife David stole and then turned around and deliberately killed. But these men were powerful too. There, there's one account when the Philistines had, um, had taken over David's hometown of Bethlehem. He was heartbroken. Just, you know, some, somebody taking over Jefferson City if you grew up here or wherever. And the Israelite army is camped right outside Bethlehem for a battle during the night. And they're preparing to retake the city, hopefully. But King David's sitting there with them, and he's heartbroken. And he, he's heartbroken to have his enemies possess his, his beloved town. And he says to himself, oh, how I miss the sweet waters from the well within the gates. And without him knowing, he didn't ask him to do it, without him knowing it, a few of these mighty men, they get up, they look at each other like, let's do it. And they break through the Philistine garrison. They sneak through it. They grab a bucket. They get some water. And they run it back through the Philistine line. And they give it to their king. And David is just overwhelmed. In fact, he actually doesn't even drink it. He's so overwhelmed at their sacrifice. Um, just to get a glass of water. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, these men say something to David that has really stuck with me for several years. The scriptures say the spirit came upon the chief of them. His name was Amasai. And he said, we are yours, O David. And we are with you, O son of Jesse. We are yours. We are yours. And maybe it's just me. Maybe it's because I'm a guy. There's something I love. I love the brave hearts and all the gladiator movies. But... The idea of service and devotion, that's just really cool. But I read that and my heart says, yes, I love that devotion to the king. Don't you? And I think, okay, here's the reality. If the word became flesh and dwelt among us, if the eternal Son of God tabernacled amongst us as the true and final temple, who also is the ultimate David, right? If the kingdom of God has come in him, then today, tonight, you're hearing my voice Brothers and sisters, we have a king right now. We don't have that mindset. We have a president. We have a democracy. But we have a king. An actual, alive, reigning over his kingdom king. We have a king. We serve a king. Mark 1 says, I have good news. The kingdom of God has come. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to come? It means the king has come. Right? The king has come. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king is standing there saying it to them. The king has come to take his people and to establish his kingdom and to to bring his people into his dominion and land and we are those people and he is our king. How much greater is our current risen, exalted king than King David? If King David is worthy of 30 mighty, devoted men, if he's worthy of men willing to die to get him a cup of water, then what kind of love and service and commitment ought we to have for our king? I hope it doesn't sound corny, but I so want to be a mighty man for Jesus. I want to say to him, we are yours, O Jesus. We are with you, son of David. We'll fight to the death with you. We will sleep out in caves with you if we have to. We will, we will go without our homes. We'll leave our family. Remember the story of David, right? We'll, we'll be chased out of our country for you. We'll starve. We'll fight. We'll, we'll turn and defend against an army. We'll, just to be with you. Just to serve you. Just to, we'll give up our life to give you a cup of water if that's what it takes. Just to be with you because you are a worthy, glorious king. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray that God would fuel our hearts this week with 
there, there, was something, there was something about David that these men saw that said, we want to serve you. We, we, we'll do anything for you. It's in the gospel accounts that our hearts are fueled with that same passion. So, so let's pray that as we continue through John, and just, just as we continue through the word period, that God would help us to see in Jesus the same thing times a million that they saw in David that said, whatever you ask, wherever you point, whatever you want, I'm yours. I'm with you. Let's pray. God, we, we are yours. We are yours. Do with us what you please, Lord. Let us be devoted soldiers of Christ, willing to go where you point, fight when you say, speak what you tell us to, love, obey, sacrifice, and die. Let us gladly die to ourselves in service to you, our King. God, help us to see tonight, right now, help us to see this week, to be reminded of the presence and rule of our King. It's, it's a tool of Satan that because, because we no longer sit next to you and eat with you, we, we lose sight of the fact that you are currently, right now, ruling as King of our lives. There's this separation in our brains and in our sinful hearts. Lord, tear that down. Let us be so aware of your presence, of your kingly presence, and of your glorious presence, Lord, so that we joyfully would part even with our lives, so that, like, like the hymn says, Lord, we would let goods and kindred go in service to you. We pray in our King's name. Amen.